Hello and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm an acute physician working in Coventry. And I'm Dr. Hussain Bashir, I'm a respiratory physician in the KSS region. This is a podcast about general medicine for anyone in healthcare and it's recorded by the Education Department at the Royal College of Physicians. The aim of the podcast is to demystify medicine, recap and clarify general medical topics and also cover some historical facts. And this week, we're going to talk about chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Over to you. Yeah, so I thought we'd focus today on sort of what you'd see on the medical tape coming through the front door. So acute exacerbations of COPD. Uh, So let's delve in straight into a case. So we've got Mrs. Birch. She's 80 years old, known to have COPD. She's a current smoker. Um, She's been a little bit breathless, purulent sputum, increased volume in the last few days. Um, She's quite tachypneic um, when you see her at the edges of the bed. Uh, Saturations are 89% on room air, blood pressures 100 over 90, uh, and her heart rate is 100. Um, So what are your initial thoughts? So I've got an 80-year-old lady who's known to have COPD and is coming short of breath and increased pregnancy schmutum. Okay, so the first thing that I'm going to do is the end of the bed test. Does she look well? Does she look unwell? And in classic advanced life support, I'd go A, B, C, D, E. Yeah. And from an airway perspective, her oxygen levels are 89% on room air. Actually, in somebody with COPD, you might accept anything between 88 to 92. If they're acutely unwell, however, you would contemplate starting on 100% oxygen for a non-rebreathe mask and titrating down to the appropriate level. Now, you have to be aware of that. Patients with COPD, you put them on high levels of oxygen, it can knock off their hypoxic drive and they can start to retain lots of carbon dioxide. So just ease with caution. From a breathing perspective, her respiratory rate's high, um, her saturations are low, as we've already mentioned, but she's speaking, so we know her airway's patent. Her blood pressure's a little bit low. Um, might want to get some IV access, take some bloods, give her some fluids. Heart rate's a little bit high. Again, indicating, could she actually be septic? It's something I'll be thinking about, actually. So on that blood gas, make sure you look at a lactate to ensure that it's not over two and she is septic. Um, I'd want to be thinking about um, if she's very, very wheezy and she's acutely unwell, I need to treat this there and then. I'm going to give her some nebulizers, salbutamol, think about opotropium, think about some intravenous steroids, hydrocortisone. If she's well and can take things orally, oral prednisolone is always an option. Checking the glucose, really important in acutely unwell patients. Particularly, we're going to give them huge doses of steroids, maybe knocking up her sugars. So really think about that. And in E, exposing her, looking elsewhere. Is there any signs of infection? Is there any signs of a DVT? Has the shortness of breath been triggered off by a PE? So again, generally looking at the patient and continuously reassessing working through our ABCDE. Yeah. So kind of the picture you've built up in your head, are you going to send her home or are you going to no, admit no. her in? No, I'm not going to send her home. No, um, definitely going to keep her in. I'm so happy to do that. It was a bit of a loaded question because yeah. uh, actually with what we've just heard, um, there are a few definite red flags in there that this patient warrants inpatient treatment for COPD, uh, not just from the history. So obviously it is a very typical COPD exacerbation history. Uh, there's something called the anthonism criteria. Okay. Uh, don't worry about the name. It's all in the words of the actual history. So 
increased sputum production yep. uh, and purulence yep. and breathlessness. And in particular, we're looking for a deterioration that's different from the normal day-to-day variation in a COPD patient. So actually, we've got our provisional diagnosis just from the history alone. Yeah. Um, it's important to consider this because, again, through the front door, you get a lot of referrals. You know, Just because they have COPD, yeah. if they're a little bit more breathless, doesn't necessarily mean it's an exacerbation. Mm-hmm. Um, just remember that you know, if you've got smoking damage, that's bad enough to cause a lung disease. It may also be bad enough to cause heart disease, peripheral vascular disease. Um, they may have other comorbidities, particularly patients of this age. Um, but the red flags, which you know instantly that this patient needs sort of urgent treatment, is the saturations. So they're lower than 90%, which is a definite this patient's needs treating um, as an inpatient. Um, also, things to consider are, you know, rapid rate of onset, um, confusion. Again, particularly in the elderly, it's important to differentiate between acute and chronic confusion. Uh the severity of their COPD, so if they're already receiving long-term oxygen, that's again a definite thing that they need to be an inpatient for. Um, and social circumstance as well. She sounds quite frail. Yeah. Um, I withheld a bit of information, but yeah, she's looking a little bit skinny, okay. quite kyphotic, um, maybe got that tripod stance where they're trying to use their accessory muscles and uh, having difficulty in lying flat. So yes, I would agree with everything you suggested. Yeah, and interesting, you mentioned difficulty lying flat. Um, I'd be thinking, has she got right-sided heart failure? Yeah. Um, because of her COPD, has she got pulmonale, increased pressure in the right side of the heart, leading to fluid retention that's also going to need managing? So always think about pulmonary hypertension, yeah. um, particularly in the severe COPD cases. Um, in the acute setting, if you you know haven't had enough information about the past medical history it can be difficult to differentiate between heart failure and COPD but as we've just said you know it's all about the history yeah um, and the clinical signs that you elicit um good and you've mentioned the the kind of the the usual treatment there's nothing hard about it so the the guidelines recently published by BTS Gold and NICE and they all kind of say the same thing so if you're considering sepsis then yes obviously early antibiotic treatment is uh, warranted. Um, you've also suggested salbutamol and ipratropine nebulizers and prednisolone, either IV or uh, the IV equivalent. Uh, sorry, IV hydrocortisone or the oral equivalent of prednisolone mm-hmm. would be sensible. Um, it's just important to be aware of what antibiotics you do choose. So most community-acquired infections are either due to strep pneumonia, uh, Haemophilus influenza, and less commonly, Moraxella catalis. Um, Follow your trust guidelines for what antibiotics you use, but normally you go for, um, you know, something like colmoxiclavir or doxycycline. But depending on how severely ill they are, you could also go for intravenous treatment as well. And what about we're going into the winter months now? What about the flu? Yeah, so uh, flu. So people with severe lung disease should be getting the flu jab anyway. Um, so it's a bit of a sort of. Uh, judgment call do you swab everyone who has these but then that has its kind of infection control issues but you are right when you're thinking about the patient do they have a viral infection and are they going to have a superimposed bacterial infection on top of that so very much so flu is a big cause of inpatient admissions for CAPD. Um, You mentioned also kind of the the ABCD assessing how severe this is so uh, again the guidelines highlight something called the DCAF score Um, So there's a study um, that has shown that this is a good predictor of inpatient mortality 
uh, for severe COPD. Uh, so what the DCAF score is, it's a, a scale. Um, so you've got dyspnea, eosinopenia, so if your eosinophil count is low, uh, a consolidation on an X-ray, an acidosis on blood gas, and atrial fibrillation. And they found that if you had a high score, this was a strong predictor of mortality. Uh, and they also compared it to the CURB score and actually found that DCAF score is, is, is just as, if not more reliable uh, at predicting mortality and CPD exacerbations than the CURB score is for pneumonia. So if you think about how often we use yeah, CURB score time. pneumonia, yep. um, the guidelines have, you know, have validated this, that this is an important thing to consider for CPD exacerbations. NIV. When do you think about NIV? So, uh, I would want to, first of all, optimise my medical management. So, I want to make sure that, um, in this case, Mrs Birch has had a full continuous A2E assessment. We're on the right oxygen concentration. She's having a nebulizer, salbutamol, ivotropium. Obviously, using the salbutamol with caution, we don't want to tip her into massive tachycardia or raise the lactate even more with excessive use of the salbutamol. Ipotropium, we want to be cautious. If she takes teotropium already for the COPD, ensure that we don't we cross the teotropium off her drug chart. Really important. Um, aminophylline, what are your thoughts on aminophylline? Yeah, so there is mention of it in the guidance and, and particularly if people are already on uh, theophylline, it's important to do a theophylline level because if they're getting too much of that, that may be uh, a cause of... Um, either you know subtherapeutic doses, but also tachycardia as well. Um, however, it's more reserved for asthma treatments. Yeah. Um, and I know we're also talking about magnesium. That's more for again asthma treatment rather than COPD. Mm. So it's it's usually the the nebulizers, the steroids, and antibiotics, which is the the most effective uh, treatment. And as you quite rightly mentioned, good oxygen. So if I've done all of that and she's still not getting any better, um, I'm going to look at my arterial blood gas. So if she's got a persistent sort of acidosis, so a pH of less than 7.35 or equal 7.35, or a persistent hypercapnia, so the CO2 is greater than 4.55 and is rising in spite of optical medical, optimal medical management, I'm probably going to think actually NIV. Yeah, exactly. So you've, you've perfectly captured it there. It's persistent hypercapnic respiratory failure. So if your CO2 is rising and particularly if it's, it's going above 6 and you're acidotic and you've already had the optimal medical management for at least an hour, uh, that is an indication to start NIV. Um, just a couple of uh, sort of recommendations. Make sure you've done an X-ray. Make sure their respiratory failure is not because of a pneumothorax. Mm -hmm. If they have a pneumothorax, put a chest strain in and repeat the gas because just by aspirating the air might be enough to reverse the respiratory failure. Um, make sure that the patient is aware that they're going to have a mask on for probably the majority of the day and night, uh, just with some breaks for fluids. Uh, and if it's successful, uh, then they can have increasing gaps with that. But it is a big thing for patients to have. And how often do you do their arterial blood gas when they've started the treatment with NIV? Yes, if they've started, you, you want to keep quite a close eye on them to make sure that their settings that they've started on is effective. So, you know, do a, a blood gas sort of, you know, within half an hour to begin with. And then if you're seeing an improvement, you can then extend it sort of by an hour or even a, a little bit more, so four to six hours. Okay. Um, and then if you're getting into days of progressive improvement, 
um, you could rely on maybe an early morning gas um, or once a day gas to determine your thing. Um, I'm just going to highlight one of the uh, programs that's happening at the RCP. So they're doing a national COPD audit program. Um, and the data is um, quite interesting from my point of view. Um, so 10% of admissions received acute treatment with NIV. However, only 30% received it within the current standard of three hours. So there's a Gosh, lot of patients who need... It's quite disheartening. Yeah, who need NIV, um, but just for whatever reason aren't getting it within um, you know, a, a quick enough time. And it's just something that all healthcare professionals need to be aware of, is if you can you know, get the gases early, get the investigations done, because uh, this is a, a very high-risk group that is liable to you know, deteriorate quite quickly. So there's certainly room for improvement um, in when regards to applying NIV. Absolutely. Um, a couple of other interesting things just to, to let you know about as well. So obviously COPD, this is lady is a smoker. Um, there's a lot of debate about how we help people to quit smoking. So, you know, there's the normal nicotine replacement methods, but there's also vaping. Yes, um, a bit so the, controversial. Yeah, so there, there's um, been a statement put out by the RCP, which, again, I'm just going to regurgitate some facts here, which um, feel free to use in your exams or paces. Um, but we know that smoking is the single largest avoidable cause of premature death. 100,000 people in the UK are killed by smoking each year. 7.6 million adults remain regular smokers, and half of them will be killed by smoking unless they quit. So not just the COPD, it's the heart disease, it's the lung cancers, it's the infection. So it's a big, a big deal. Um, with vaping, though, the, the current evidence, and it is limited because it's a relatively new phenomenon, um, is actually overwhelmingly positive for smokers. So they found that e-cigarettes are not a gateway to smoking. Uh, they do not result in the normalization of smoking. Um, they help people quit. Um, and essentially, it's something that a lot of people have found useful over uh, normal nicotine replacement therapy. Um, they've said that people are unlikely to exceed more than 5% of the associated risks with tobacco products with vaping. However, 5%, I think, is still quite a high risk, actually. Um, and we have no long-term data, and we don't know what the effects of heating a solution that's got you know, nicotine, uh, propylene glycol, vegetable glycerine, all sorts of chemicals and flavorings. We don't, we just don't know what the long-term effects of the lungs are for that. Um, so my mantra is the lungs are meant to breathe fresh air and fresher only. So if possible, don't have anything. But the current guidance is um, at the moment in favor of it for people who are needing to quit smoking. So watch this space. Absolutely. So you mentioned um, not breathing anything bad, but I mean, in our society today, pollution is a big problem. Yeah. So, have you got any thoughts on that? And the yeah, absolutely. So, so that's the the last uh, recent paper from again the Royal College of Physicians. Um, every breath we take, the lifelong impact of air pollution. So, this again has also raised some quite stark figures. So, forty thousand deaths a year are attributable to exposure to outdoor air pollution. Um, we know it is linked to cancer, asthma, COPD, but also stroke, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, and dementia. So all the big things as general medics that we see, pollution has a significant effect on. So what can we do? So it's, it's kind of awareness. So 
I mean, we here at the college, obviously, we're lobbying government and, and you know, the, especially in London here, uh, to cut down on air pollution. But people who smoke are more likely to be from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and are likely to be in deprived areas. And deprived areas have higher levels of air pollution. Also, people with lung disease and particularly with the age of our patient, they're more vulnerable because of their age, but also of existing medical conditions. And air pollution just sort of affects it twofold, threefold, fourfold. So it's just important to bear in mind that maybe their recurrent emissions aren't necessarily due to smoking or partially treated infections, but is it actually their living environment? Um, so it's just important to flag that up to you know social care and, and think about, okay, maybe there are some bigger causes here. Than, yeah, it's than a bigger picture, isn't it? Yeah, and thinking about that and how we can reduce air pollution, you know, one of the biggest things that helps reduce air pollution is trees. Right. So, you know, they absorb a huge amount of um, nasty things in the atmosphere, so maybe we need to plant more trees. Yeah. And certainly in the house, um, house plants, again, are very good at absorbing um, nasty pollutants in the air, so maybe we should all get some house plants and plant some trees. I think that's a, a very nice way of dealing with the problem of air pollution. I would vouch for that. Obviously, we're not entirely sure where smoking originated from. There's theories that it's in America, the Far East, the Middle East. But um, it sort of only really came into sort of general population sort of this century when in the First World War and, the, you know, people were given cigarettes um, as a treat, really. And, you know, we've all watched those television programmes where people and doctors were smoking on telly and smoking was prescribed to clear the lungs. So actually, doctors are probably to blame for a lot of the yeah. problems that we do have. It was pollution. very glamorous in the last century, but yeah. thankfully we've moved beyond that. And, uh, and so, um, what about some learning points from today? What have you learnt? Yeah, so um, it's nice to know that there are a variety of guidelines that are relatively up to date uh, and are all saying the same things. I'd like to highlight, though, to the, the thing that you can do immediately is assessing whether an inpatient, uh, whether a patient needs inpatient or outpatient treatment. So look for those red flags about, you know, are they already on LTOT? Is there acute confusion? What are their SATs doing? Um, I was also quite interested to hear about the validation of the DCAF score. So again, with COPD, just think about what is the, the long-term goal. Uh, NRV should be, again, a red flag. If they're using it for the first time, that is an important predictor um, of sort of mortality in the long run, readmission rates, etc. So we'd have to think, are they at risk of dying this admission or in the future? Do we need to think about advanced care planning? Um, and yes, it's also reassuring to know about all the research that is going on constantly and the COPD audit at, here at the college. Yeah, and certainly um, I've learned about the amphonism criteria, yep. <laughs> which is good, um, and also the decaf score and the clarification of the use of NIV and also air pollution. And, you know, the detrimental effect it's having on us and our lifestyle. So um, we all need to go and plant more trees and get some houseplants. Thank you for listening to the RCP Medicine Podcast. If you want to get in touch, email us at podcasts at rcplondon.ac.uk or tweet us at RCP London. And we look forward to hearing from you. Goodbye.